welcome to Bio-Citizen Banter, a podcast dedicated to environmental philosophy featuring lively discussions between people active in the effort to bring biotic health and diversity to our communities and commonwealth. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks again for tuning in to today's episode of Bio-Citizen Banter. I'm your host, Benny Jacob Schwartz. I'm BioCitizens Director here in Los Angeles, and today we are in Pasadena, California, catching up with a dear friend, Parker Davis, who is a Director of Outreach and Communication here at the Hahamanga Native Plant Nursery. Um, and today we're going to be talking about native, plant, native plants, local restoration, and community activism here in Northeast Los Angeles. So thanks so much for joining us today, Parker. How are you doing? Great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's our absolute pleasure. And a little bit of background on the Hahamanga Native Plant Nursery. BioCitizen uh, reached out to Hahamanga earlier this summer season, and we said, hey, can we come over? We want to show the kids all of the amazing things that you guys are doing over here. And what did y'all say? We said, absolutely, we'd love to have you. I mean, that's definitely one of our main uh, goals with the nursery is to use it as much as we can as an educational facility and just a sort of a, a point to do um, outreach from. And uh, so as much as we can be interacting with uh, local youth and community members uh, and sort of teaching them about our mission and uh, sort of promoting our appreciation for native plants and ecology, then uh, we feel like we're doing our job. So that was a great idea that you had and we were happy to have you guys over. Um, as you know, it was kind of a new thing for me. I had just started my position here, um, and uh, I was really enthusiastic about uh, starting to do more educational stuff, so getting your guys' group in here to do that was really useful for me, just in kind of uh, sort of uh, starting that project out. Yeah. So before we get too deep into that, maybe you could provide us a little bit about what the heck the Hahamangna Native Plant Nursery is and what's so special about native plants. So Hahamanda Native Plant Nursery is a not-for-profit, it's part of a not-for-profit, I should say. We're a project of the Arroyo Seco Foundation, which is a local not-for-profit with over a hundred-year history. Uh, was originally founded by Charles Lummis, one of the early settlers here in Los Angeles and in Pasadena. Um, and we continue his mission today, which is basically to promote, protect, preserve, and restore the Arroyo Seco watershed from up above Switzer's Falls down to the, its confluence with the L.A. River. For those of you who don't know, the Arroyo Seco is one of the primary tributaries of the Los Angeles River. And in recent years, there's been a lot of talk um, in the community about restoring the Los Angeles River. And one of the developments that we've been pleased to see in those discussions is that people are really starting to wisen up to the idea that if we're planning on restoring the L.A. River, one of the first things we need to focus on is restoring the Arroyo Seco, which is one of those major tributaries to it. And historically, it was the first place that native steelhead trout could make it up into the mountains from the Pacific Ocean. They would come up the Los Angeles River, and this was their first access point to breeding grounds up in the, uh, up in the San Gabriel Mountains. Wow. So you guys have a pretty holistic and multifaceted approach to kind of local conservation, it sounds like? Absolutely. I mean, we're in a lot of ways, we're a water organization and water conservation organization. Um, uh, but we think that all of these kinds of different ideas go hand in hand in a lot of ways. 
it's really our dream to see those native fish restored to the to the watershed. Uh, we think that if we could accomplish that goal, then we know that we have checked all the little boxes along the way that you know um, are all very important to all the different aspects of ecological restoration work and conservation work. So what I'm hearing, just to clarify, is to have a successful population of Southern California steelhead trout return to the Arroyo Seco, all of the work that you're doing here at the nursery in some way or another serves to benefit the local ecology, which is kind of like the hardest thing is to restore everything else. And then if the overall habitat has been successfully restored, the sign of that success is the steelhead being able to survive Absolute. and persist here. Absolutely. And I mean, in order for the steelhead to come back, we'd obviously have to do a lot of infrastructural work that, you know, uh, including figuring out passages through the dams, for example. Um, you know, the Devil's Gate Dam, which was constructed in the 1920, um, was the primary, created the primary sort of um, obstacle for native fish to, to, to do their migration there. Obviously, they couldn't do it anymore. Um, but we believe that we could come up with an engineering plan that would be satisfactory for everyone that actually put a hole through the center of it and we could create, uh, you know, some stream habitat that actually ran through the middle of it. Um, and there's other dams, for example, Brown Mountain Dam, which we've got our eye on up in the mountains. They constructed that, I believe, around 1940. And from what I have understood about it, uh, essentially there was a fire within a year or two after that uh and the dam filled up with sediment almost immediately and has per, per, you know served no useful function utilitarian function since then so that's another dam that we think we could get rid of actually without you know doing any damage to our infrastructure um, and in fact only improving the infrastructure for fish and wildlife and for people because you know hikers uh, used to be able to walk straight up the canyon from right there too, and when they uh, constructed that dam there, it forced uh, forced them to create have to create trail that kind of detoured around it, which is um, you go up the side of these switchbacks, and who nobody likes switchbacks, right? So <laughs> <laughs> it's either switchbacks or straight up it. So <laughs> that's right. I guess. Cool. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the native plants, for example, because. There's nothing more trendy than converting your lawn into a native plant garden. You know, there's a lot of like water wise things and especially in our, you know, biome, this Southern California, like Mediterranean climate, we're a pretty low precipitation area. And so the plants that we should be planting here are potentially different than the plants that we have been planting here. Can you touch on that and share a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, so as you said, there have been trends towards this movement uh, for a while now, uh, this idea of people planting native plants in their yards uh, and gardens at home. And we're really pleased to see that. For a long time, you know, I mean, initially people planted whatever they wanted to plant here and they irrigated like crazy. You know, everybody's familiar with lawns, obviously, is sort of a uh, icon of the American West in a lot of ways. Um, but, um, as people started to realize that we were in a uh, drought-heavy environment in a lot of ways with uh, minimal amounts of water and cyclical at best, you know, uh, amounts of water that come through the area, that they needed to be uh, more conscientious as to how they were using their water and maybe not watering lawns like that. So they started installing a lot of drought-tolerant plants 
plants that we saw, you know, like succulents from South Africa and Madagascar and regions like that, which were very water-wise, but that also that don't necessarily do that much for the local ecology, though. Um, as you know, uh, the plants that are native to the area have evolved here for millions of years and have co-evolved uh, relationships with various pollinator species and other uh, types of wildlife. Um, and they all rely very much on one another uh, to coexist. And so it turns out that while drought tolerance is a great thing to pursue, that it's, it's, uh, that drought tolerance is kind of built into our native species that also have the added benefits of having all these, um, you know, relationships with uh, wildlife and pollinator species. So now we're getting to see people starting to, uh, starting to open up to that idea, and they're starting to plant a lot more native plants in their yard, and we're, we couldn't be more thrilled about it. So, just to clarify, it's not enough for a plant to be drought tolerant. It, it's better for it to be a native plant? That's right. Uh, we believe that uh, the best choice for local gardens are the plants that have locally evolved for millions of years uh, to have relationships with the wildlife and uh, pollinator insects and birds um, that all interact with each other here in Southern California and really, really regionally specifically so. Um, so with the, our nursery, for example, since we do largely restoration stuff, but also since we're interested in restoring habitat within private you know, residential yards and gardens in our community, we only grow plants that are native to this specific region. So we grow plants that we, uh, from seed and cutting that we collect right here in our local basin and those are the plants that we grow for uh, restoration and for sale to the public so that we can kind of keep those uh, genetic relationships and evolutionary relationships intact as much as possible. Um, one of the examples that I like to give uh, of a plant that is very um, regionally specific is the chaparral mallow. And I know that I've told this story to your students before when they've come through with BioCitizen. Um, that I was out in the garden photographing the chaparral mallow plant um, one morning for the Instagram when I first started working here. And as I peered inside with my camera lens, I, uh, inside the first flower, I realized there was a little bee curled up inside of it. And I mm. thought maybe the bee had expired while it was doing its pollinator work. So I thought that was kind of sad. And I went to take a picture of the next flower instead. And there was a bee inside that flower as well. And the next flower, wow. same thing. So I thought this was kind of curious, and I wondered what was going on. I asked my friend Didi Soto with the uh, Xerxes Society, which is a whole pollinator advocacy group. And she said, those sound like they could be deodasia bees. And so I looked into it, and sure enough, that's what this bee was. It's a native bee in the family of globe mallow bees. And evidently, this entire family of bees, each specific species associates with a different specific species of globe mallow plants. Wow. So the chaparral mallow plant, which is the one that I was photographing, uh, there are these bees, the chaparral mallow bees, that associate with that specific plant. And they don't. these are native bees, so they don't sleep in hives. They actually don't sting. Um, and they actually sleep 
on plants or in plants. And in this case, they sleep inside the flowers of the chaparral mallow plant. And the flowers actually close up at night and these, form these little uh, sleeping bags or cocoons. And in the morning, the flowers open back up again. The bees wake up and they go about their pollinating work for the rest of the day, which I thought was just really kind of magical kind of fun relationship, you know? So it's kind of like the modern-day Thumbelina, perhaps. <laughs> exactly, yes, definitely. <laughs> I, I call it like a bee motel or something like that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. yeah, I definitely remember checking that out with the students, and my mind was definitely blown. And I think it's so important to understand that Right, like we understand that there's a lot of ecological collapse and degradation that's happened and is currently happening, and especially in the realm of pollinators, and they're often an overlooked group, but they shouldn't be because obviously the food that we eat and the plants that we rely on for oxygen are all inextricably linked to the pollinators that visit them and carry on the essential pollination functions and carry on, you know, basically keeping those plants alive. So you know, for our listeners out there, it's so important wherever you're living to su to support your local ecology. It starts at a foundational level and plants are absolutely the foundation. And so if you want to increase the local biodiversity and your local ecological resilience, um, we'd recommend, you know, contacting your local native plant nursery, whether it's here in the Pasadena area or somewhere else, wherever you live, um, they'll have awesome resources for you to upgrade your local garden or a local outdoor park that you're maybe on the board of or like participating in and help them, you know, increase the local flora so that we can uh, continue to preserve and conserve the local fauna that rely on them. That's right. So you mentioned a little bit about what I think is so interesting about Hahamangna is two things. One is that you guys source all your genetics locally, which you mentioned, right? So I've seen uh, folks from your guys' team out in the field taking willow cuttings or mugwort cuttings or you know cult or grabbing seeds and growing them here which is amazing and super unique and then the second thing i think is so interesting is that you guys are growing a lot of native plants for restoration projects that's right yeah we um just finished up uh a second of our series of lawsuits against the county for this uh, devil's gate uh big dig we call it after the station fire um, in 2009, we had a lot of settlement, uh, sediments, I should say, collect behind the Devil's Gate Dam at the uh, south end of the Hahamangna Basin. And the Arroyo Seco Foundation had long advocated for a more sustainable sediment removal program wherein the county would come in and remove the amount of sediment that collected each year as opposed to waiting for it to build up to levels that were unsustainable and then forcing them to sort of act quickly to remove a bunch of trees and habitat that would grow in in between and uh, in order to remove all the sediment all at once. Now, uh, typically the county doesn't like to operate that way, so they like to wait until it's too late. But this time around, we did file a lawsuit in conjunction with the Audubon Society and the judge uh, sided with us and uh, as a result, the county will be forced to adopt one of these more uh, a more sustainable annual sediment removal programs. So they don't have to wait until you know 30 years and then tear out an entire forest in between. Um, and they're also going to have to be restoring a lot of the areas that they're uh, that they decimated in order to do this current removal project. And as a result of that, we are providing 7,000 of the trees for this fall planting. 
Um, and those are all trees, again, like you said, that you've seen us out. And if anybody out there listening walks around in the hall among the basin, you've probably seen um, some of our staff and volunteers out collecting seed and cutting, um, like Benny said, off of willow trees and cottonwood trees and uh, mule fats and mugworts and, co- and coyote brush and different things like that. Um, and uh, so we're growing those trees as fast as we can for that restoration work and that's that's really largely what our focus is on here is growing trees for restoring the uh the watershed interesting and so i have here with me some of these uh interesting like conical elliptical shaped little fruits sure um and i have it on good authority these are uh acorns from oak trees they do look like coast live oak acorns in fact yes and i also have it on good authority that you guys are currently accepting uh acorn donations to uh continue to increase the stock of coast live oaks could you share a little bit about that and maybe why this uh keystone species is so important to this basin absolutely so the coast live oak is a um is a regionally endemic uh, species of oak that grows west of the uh, Sierra Nevada mountains from up in about Mendocino County, south to northern Baja, California. It really relies on coastal fog and that marine layer in order to survive, which is why it's limited to that specific range. Um, As a tree species, it supports hundreds of other uh, species of birds and insect and uh, other species of wildlife out there. Um, and in fact, it was, um, it remains a, uh, important, uh, food source, uh, for, um, the, uh, Native American cultures of, uh, tribal Indians that lived here, such as the Tongva, uh, Quiche and, um, and, uh, Chumash folks that all lived here in Southern California really relied on these acorns as a primary source of food, um, and it is acorn season now, so the acorns are dropping, and we are, as we do every year, trying to collect as many of them as we can from nice, big, old heritage uh, specimen trees. And if any of the li- your listeners out there would like to help participate and you have access to some of those trees on your property or in your neighborhood, we would encourage you to collect some of those acorns for us and bring them by the nursery to drop off at some point. We can give you a little discount on your plant order that day um, for helping us out. There's instructions on our website if you guys are interested in helping out as to how you would identify the different species of um, coast live oaks and Engelman oaks that we have in our area, um, how to properly select them, um, and how to make sure that they are uh, potentially viable for propagation, and how to store them and transport them and all that kind of stuff. So check out our website, um, arroyoseco.org, for more information on our acorn collection program. Nice. And uh, this this spot that we're in, like Hahamunga Native Plant Nursery, is within the Hahamunga Watershed Park, or formerly known as the Oak Grove uh, Park. Well, well, obviously there's a lot of oak trees here. I heard a story back in the day that basically a lot of people complain about how hot it is in Los Angeles, which mm. for good reason, it's, mm. we're kind of in a desert region mm. and it's flipping hot. There's no question about that, mm. but there were no accounts of early explorers actually passing through periods without shade in, especially in the San Fernando Valley. They said that their journey was 
always covered mm. with a shade canopy mm. because of the prevalence of oak trees. Mm. And that the oaks basically were this umbrella of shade wherever explorers were traveling. And obviously they were here for thousands and thousands of years prior to that. Sure. But as far as our kind of written records that we were, you know, looking at, they were saying that there were so many oak trees. And so I was just kind of curious, where are all the oak trees? And it sounds like you guys are doing some work to bring some of those oaks back. Yeah, well, like, for example, with the, uh, the other uh, main species that we like to collect and propagate here, uh, Quercus engelmanii, uh, the common name for that is the Pasadena oak, which gives you an idea of its range. It, we're standing right now at the northernmost point of its historical distribution. It would grow from the mouth of the San Gabriel Mountains uh, down into northern Baja. And its other name, other most common name, uh, is the mesa oak, which gives you an idea of where within that range it would like to grow. Hmm. Um, so it grew on mesas along the foothills, and you know that's a prime prime spot for developers looking to build houses. Um, so most of our Engelman oaks uh, populations have been wiped out over the years through human development, and human development has been probably the primary reason for loss of oak habitat in general. Um, and um, so now we're left with, uh, you know, the Engelman oak has become a rare and endangered tree. 90% of its remaining uh, population is in a, a nature preserve in northern San Diego County. Wow. And um, we really like to see more Engelmans brought back into, um, into natural areas and parks in uh, throughout Southern California. And in fact, there's actually even now a movement for establishing some of these trees north of their historic uh, native range into areas like the Bay, where with climate change sort of altering our weather patterns, the Bay Area has now become an area where these Engelman Oaks um, could potentially do very, very well and, hmm. and may thrive, in fact. so. Um, there are sort of experimental conservationists out there who are looking at um, at moving the ranges to sort of uh, assist them in their climate migration. So it's kind of like a proactive relocation based on modeled climate change exactly. patterns. Exactly. Very, very cool. And the other thing that I was actually also just in a talk um, a couple weeks ago with a... Uh, graduate student from UCLA who was kind enough to donate to us um, a bunch of oak propagation uh, pots mm -hmm. from his last from his uh, thesis uh, he was working on his PhD over there uh, his thesis is on the potential uh, use of hybridized oaks for conservation interesting um, and specifically he's looking at the Engelman oak and how it hybridizes with the scrub oak and um, the scrub oak may make it more drought tolerant than it even is our, in, its, in its pure genetic state. Uh -huh. um, so he's looking at the possibility of, you know, purposefully even hybridizing them in, uh, in controlled environments to then reestablish populations of them um, that have specific characteristics that are desirable, you know, based on climate models, like you said. Wow. So interesting, and and myself as a birder, you know, some of one of I remember one of the earlier times I was here in the park, and I was leading a birding walk, and I was blown away at the activity that was happening on these oak trees. I mean, 
These oak trees alone can harbor up to 150 different species of insects. So for insectivorous species or birds that eat insects, oak trees are basically like... A buffet, Exactly. Right? It's like, <laughs> you know, the best thing you've ever wanted. But for a wide variety of other species of birds like acorn woodpeckers, uh, California scrub jays, oak titmice, um, and a plethora of other bird species, they also rely heavily upon oak trees. And one thing that I had actually read was that... Um, especially after a fire type event, California scrub jays are positively correlated with forest recruitment and oak tree recruitment mm. because as they collect the acorns, they store them and they bury them in the ground in this soft kind of loamy soil where they can kind of push it into the ground. And then through their near perfect spatial memory, they create a network in their mind of, okay, I had one here and one here and one here, but it isn't perfect. And so some of them get forgotten and in these like ideal growing conditions, the soil and the sun, they are basically actively recruiting young oak trees and expanding so and cool. restoring Amazing. the edges of forests. I love it. Scrub jays are my favorite. We have, <laughs> as you know, we have a resident scrub jay here that I like to call weirdo. Although we were talking about, we were talking about maybe changing his name to cheeseburger because mm. he recently brought me a cheeseburger and dropped it off in one of my pots. Um, and I always tell the kids that story too, and they really <laughs> like that. But we're, yeah, we're talking about, Maybe renaming Weirdo Cheeseburger. We'll see what happens. But nice. The Scrub Jays are so smart, though, man. Oh, my gosh. Love them. Keep us posted on the rename. I'm <laughs> sure the kids are curious to hear about yeah. that. Um, and so speaking of, you know, restoration, I know you guys won a hard-fought battle um, as far as kind of requiring native plants and to be restored to the Devil's Gate restoration project. Um, but are there any other restoration projects or any other kind of political struggles you guys are engaged with right now? Absolutely. We're always very busy on that front. Um, <laughs> currently, uh, one of our main focuses is on um, the Arroyo Seco Canyon project, which is the city's attempt to remove 5% more water from the stream for municipal purposes. Um, and they are entitled to take that if they want it. Um, but we are trying to encourage them to uh, consider a infrastructure redesign that would allow them to take that water out, but also um, leave more water in the stream than they currently are because their current infrastructure is so poorly designed that um, it's not very efficient or effective. Um, and as a result, and as a part of that project, they're also um, looking at the possibility of installing new uh, percolation basins and, and or spreading basins out in the uh, Ha'amangna Basin, which um, is, uh, is something that we're very much opposed to. Uh, these, these percolation basins, they, they first started building them around the turn of the century kind of uh, with the goal of assisting percolation into the Raymond Basin uh, beneath the Ha'amangna Basin, which is a, an aquifer. And the idea it's supposed to help reestablish groundwater supply there. The problem with it is, is that when they dig out these pits, um, they tend to fill up with invasive species almost right away. Hmm. Um, and then as a result of that, in order to maintain that area and the fire threat, the city has to run heavy equipment over it uh, multiple times per year, which further impacts the soil. So they don't actually percolate very well. And so the water that 
does end up flowing into those basins, which only happens cyclically once every 10 or 15 years or so, if we're lucky, uh, tends to evaporate more than percolate. Uh, so we think there are much better uh, environmentally sensitive and just effective, efficient ways of them reestablishing groundwater, uh, for example. And that's just one aspect of that project that we're looking at and uh, fighting. Uh, another one uh, that we're sort of advocating for right now is a lower royal restoration project along the Vandekamp uh, Bridge near La Loma uh, in the lower royal. And the city has a grant to remove a large number of invasive trees and replace them with native species. Um, we are very much in support of that project. Um, however, they have res uh, encountered some resistance from a group of local squeaky wheels who, with the best of intentions and ideas, are trying to uh, protect and save uh, some of these species of invasive trees from the basin, uh, from the lower arroyo, such as eucalyptus trees and Canary Island pines. But what we're engaged in is trying to help uh, educate the public a bit about what those trees are in, in terms of the ecological importance and or uh, detriment that they provide to the rest of the ecology around that area. Because, for example, with the Canary Island pines, um, they harbor uh, shot hole borer beetles, which are a big threat to our oaks. They are a host species of Phythoptera, which is also a big uh, threat to our oak species here in California. And um, so if we allow these plants to remain in the area, they, uh, they really are posing a risk to our oak populations moving forward as well. So um, we're trying to work uh, with the public on uh, just sort of spreading that information around and making, uh, making the information accessible to folks so that they can be uh, better informed when they talk to their local city council members about these issues. Interesting. And so to me, it seems like pretty common sense, you know, how you describe you know, an alternative solution. Why do you think the city is putting forth an idea that isn't really effective or ecologically sound? Well, the city is actually, this is a case where the city is doing their best to do right by uh, all of us. They're, they're actually are proposing um, a totally solid restoration program. The problem is that there's a, a panel, a group of local residents that uh, have sentimental attachment to these trees because uh -huh. they walk in that neighborhood. Sure. And they, you know, it's easy to get attached to a large tree. I get it. I mean, eucalyptus are big and beautiful trees in a lot of ways. Um, it's funny how uh, ecological knowledge and botanical knowledge can sometimes sort of sour your ability to enjoy some <laughs> things. You know, I remember... A couple of years ago, walking around with a friend of mine over in his neighborhood in Tahunga, and he was um, sort of uh, celebrating the beauty of the large bloom of mustard that they had all around us. Mm. And I was explaining to him that that mustard, although it may look kind of pretty for a minute, uh, actually is really detrimental to all the other plants and the biodiversity in that area because they secrete these allelopathic compounds and don't allow other plants to establish themselves and they outcompete all kinds of native species of shrubs and grasses and all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't long, he, he kind of tried to argue the point with me for a minute, but it wasn't long before I met back up with him on that same trail and 
I heard him make a comment to somebody else about how much he hated the mustard now. And he said, yeah, you know, it doesn't, as soon as you know what it is, all of a sudden it's not so pretty anymore, you know? Um, and I, I always say, like, I would love to see a grove of old growth eucalyptus in Australia. Boom. You know, that would be amazing. Yeah. But they don't really have much of a place in the Arroyo. And um, it's, it's ironic also considering that one of our great fathers of conservation in the area, Theodore Lukens, was also responsible for planting a lot of these eucalyptus trees. So he did a lot of great things in terms of he basically got the Angeles National Forest established as a national forest. He established the uh, nursery up at Henninger Flats. He was very much into restoration, but for whatever reason, he had it in his head that this eucalyptus tree was the best new thing since, you know, whatever sliced bread and he he wanted them all over the place and he, he planted a lot of the ones up in northern california that they can't get rid of fast enough now too because they're you know creating these massive fire hazards wow um the things actually literally explode i guess people give oh i don't want to get into that <laughs> all right well, so for folks that are interested in getting more involved or are interested in hearing more about these amazing topics we've been discussing this afternoon. Uh, how can folks get involved with your with your guys' organization? Well, first and foremost, I'd say please follow us on social media. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Ha Among the Nursery at Arroyo Seco Foundation, and that's H A H A M O N G N A. Correct, H A H A M O N G N A. Ha Ha Mung Na, Ha Among the Native Plant Nursery. Um, we're also on Facebook. You can check out our website. If you are interested in volunteering at all, I would encourage you to please reach out to me on the Instagram or via email, parker at arroyoseco.org. Um, and, and or just stop by sometime. We're open to the public uh, Friday through Sunday, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. every weekend. We're having a great plant sale this weekend to kick off the um, fall season. And we'll be